Okay, welcome everyone and um, thank you for joining us. Uh, good evening if you're in the UK, good morning if you're in Australia or, or wherever you may be. And um, we're really excited for episode number 82 and we're joined by Professor Franco Impelazeri. And um, by way of, of brief sort of introduction to him, he has an incredible amount of years of experience as a coach himself. He has a PhD in uh, sports science. He's a pr professor in sport and exercise science and medicine at UTS in Sydney. Um, so he has an incredible amount of, I believe the phrase is skin in the game. And uh, what some of you may know him from, um, from the, the internet and from Twitter, he's an incredibly passionate scientist and man and we've assured him that it's 10 p.m here in the uk it's past the watershed so he's allowed to say what he wants and swear words are definitely uh, encouraged and allowed um and the topic is going to be i guess what he may well be most well known for on social media but from by some of us in the polite world and that is his um contesting or challenging of the acute to chronic workload ratio and frank has an, an incredible amount of experience in load monitoring and, and things like rpe and things so this comes from a very scientific um scientific position so we can look forward to in, in time asking him about some of the conceptual and i guess methodological flaws that he sees with it and some of the papers he's published about it um, and just in case you're not sure what the acute to chronic workload ratio is i'd encourage you to go back to episode 58 where we had uh, dr tim gabbett on and um, perhaps give that one a watch first and then and then come back here so you've got the, the two sides of the coin so to speak so franco firstly thank you so much for joining us it's a real pleasure Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Ian. Uh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> and we're really looking forward to this one, um, particularly after doing the load management and acute to chronic episode with, with Tim um, and now having this, which is the other sort of side of the discussion, just to be as, as scientific as possible and to make sure we're not leaving any, any stone unturned. Before we get to the, the fun stuff and the critique, which is fun as a scientist, we, we, we'd really appreciate if you could give us a bit of a, a history lesson in monitoring load because certainly I speak to some podiatry colleagues and, and they're aware of the acute to chronic workload ratio but they they're of the belief that that's sort of where load monitoring began and obviously it has a far far deeper history than that Go, goes back many many more years than that so do you mind just giving us a bit of a backstory into monitoring load in general and perhaps some of the some of the other things that the acute to chronic work, workload ratio was based upon yeah, uh, the, the the idea to try to find a way to quantify training load is an old idea. If we think that uh, the Bannister model, which is actually the model on which uh, the acute chronic workload ratio is supposed to be based, uh, it, it is uh, from the 70s. So we are talking about uh, 50 years ago uh, now. And it was an attempt to find a way to predict performance and to describe performance uh, based on on uh, training load measures. So the banister tried to to model the relation between training load and and the performance and to model you know uh, they needed a measure to quantify training load and they developed the so-called trimp which is uh, calculated usually with the heart rate but can be calculated also with the power and other indicators. So we are talking about a lot of years ago. Um, after about 20 years, uh, there were other attempts to quantify the training load. So let's say 20 years ago, there was also the performance uh, potential model uh, of PEARL that tried to quantify the load. And uh, 
train load uh, was also an interesting area in the in the in the um, for understanding overtraining uh, because there uh, about 20 years ago 25 years ago there were some uh, theories say that if you train too much you can risk uh, to increase your injury risk so again it's 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 really an old idea but if we take uh, the the concept behind because people now uh start to say that uh, the the acute chronic sensitize uh, about the overload progression the overload progression that actually was developed more in resistance training um is uh, uh um, can be tracked back to the lorm in the 50s so we are talking about 70 years ago so when people say that this uh, acute chronic uh, Rise an important issue. I think there were there, there is a problem in edu- in the education probably because uh, if the the practitioners didn't realize before the acute chronic that uh, the overload progression and these training principles uh, are important in designing uh, a training program, I think there's uh, a serious issue in the, in the education system. So uh, the that's a bit the the story. It's uh, it's a story that started almost 70 years ago. Uh, now, okay, now with the new technologies, uh, we have different ways, different metrics to try to quantify the training load. The main issue when quantifying the training load is to understand what and why you are quantifying something. And this is a bit the the battle that we are fighting to, to explain people that uh, you don't have to rely to a metric because this metric uh, exists you have to try to understand what are the information that you need. And based on the information, you select the metric that can give you that, that information. Yeah. So shortly, that's, uh, that's a bit the history. Brilliant. So am I right in my understanding that all of these sort of prior models were very much focused on, on performance? There wasn't much talk about predicting, predicting injury or, or any talk of predicting injury. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these, all the models I mentioned uh, were developed for uh, modeling performance. The Manister model actually is calculated uh, uh, is a comp- um, is a computational method based on which you uh, you enter in the equation uh, the performance, and based on the performance you calculate the so-called time decays. So the the, the time that uh, the each individual uh need for dissipating the negative effects of training and the uh, and the uh, and the um, and the positive effects so the the two components of the banister model are two uh, exponential equation uh the, in which the 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 training load is weighted using this uh, time decays in the in the acute chronic uh, uh, workload ratio these uh, uh, equations uh, have been substituted by average and, and now with some more uh, sophisticated uh, meters uh, with an exponential uh, equation, but the original uh, model just substitute with the uh, with the two averages, which is a uh, an over simplification of the original model. But yes, you're right; it, it was developed for performance. And I have to be honest, it, it doesn't work so well even for performance, because the problem is that these models tend to be to to overfit a bit the data. So they describe in an acceptable way uh, the data that you enter in the model, but when you use it as a, uh, in terms of a prediction, 
it doesn't work so well. Uh, so there, there, there are some problems also with the performance, but the extension to injuries is, uh, let's say, a liberal interpretation. And we, we, we said more than once that it, it makes not a lot of sense that something that you apply for performance uh, can be applied for injuries. I mean, there, no one have, uh, since, uh, the, the introduction, introduction of this, uh, ratio have explained uh, Uh, the, the physiological or biomechanical or whatever rational linking these models uh, to the injuries. So, I mean, as a, as a coach and as a, as a scientist, a sports scientist, I guess, uh, and even as us as clinicians, the idea of having something which allows us to sort of, you know, weigh up the fitness and the fatigue or the, the, the chronic base load of, of fitness and the acute sort of work we've recently done. And the promise that that would perhaps allow us to maximize performance or predict or minimize injury, it's, it's seductive. Um, it's, it's enticing. F from your perspective, you know, knowing what you knew about the history of load monitoring, that being so ingrained within load monitoring, when this first sort of came around and I think it was around 2014 and correct me if I'm wrong but that was the kind of first time I noticed it in the literature at least yeah. um, I guess people that didn't have the the background in, in load monitoring that you did would look at it as something new be su seduced by it uh, and I'm, I'm probably talking about myself here as well and and then roll with it could you just speak to how you as a scientist as a coach when it when it first came out and you read it what was your first reaction when you read this because you probably weren't seduced the way I was you probably were you thinking well this isn't anything new did it did it in, interest you at all what was your first reaction when you saw it yeah uh, consider that yes it, it started in 2014 with the first paper of uh, Billy Yulin um, and at that time I was working in a clinical setting so I wasn't doing a lot in sports science and I received some uh, requests of from friends and colleagues to collaborate in studies uh, using this acute chronic uh, workload ratio. And that was the time that I realized there was this new metric uh, because I wasn't following uh, so well the literature because I was concentrating on, on my let's say, new job, which, is, which was in orthopedics. So I just had, honestly, I just had a look, a quick look, uh, and I found the concept uh, very intriguing Uh, but I, I realized there was something wrong because uh, they show me the, the U-shaped model and the shape, the U-shaped model predict uh, or uh, show that uh, the, if you recover or if you taper, you increase the injury risk, which was weird. So I said, I wasn't convinced. So I refused to collaborate because I said, if I collaborate, I should understand a, a bit more about this metric. And to be honest, it, it finished there because uh, it was my it wasn't my main interest. But as a coach, I found a bit really weird. So not as a scientist, but the messages provided were a bit uh, strange because not only if you recover or if you taper, uh, seems you increase the injury risk. But the message, which was uh, again that if you increase too much too soon, uh, may be dangerous. Is something that any coach uh, already knew at that time. So I, I didn't see this metric very useful. In addition, the idea to use one single metric uh, uh, for answering to a so complex uh, problem, it, it looked a bit too redu reductionist. 
So the, I was skeptical since the beginning, but because of the concept behind, and they mentioned in the first papers also the the um, the stress balance uh, of Kogan that actually I used I I, I used because um, when I was in Italy I was working also with professional cyclists. So and these are metrics that have been developed for endurance sports. All the metrics I mentioned mainly for endurance sports, not for team sports. Uh, so I was familiar also with that metric and was completely different, by the way, because they, they use uh, an additive model with two exponential components. Um, so, uh, as I said, that, that when I start to, to see this, uh, this model going around, uh, as a coach, I found quite weird that, that idea, not as a scientist. Of course, after... When it came back in sports science, try to address the problem uh, from a scientific point of view. Yeah. I mean, that, that's interesting, Franco. That, the, that perhaps the the response to it, say in the sports science world, was probably very different to the response in the sports medical world. And, and I, by way of my background, I mean, I, I grew up with the ten percent rule. Um, I used it in my own running. I used it in my own clinical practice and assessing athletes. And if the 10% rule didn't work, we went to the 5% rule. So like Ian, when the, when I first became familiar with the acute to chronic workload ratio, that alleged cutoff point where the risk was, was about 10%. So as a clinician, that made a lot of sense to me. But then again, I didn't have the sports science background to perhaps think it through um, as a sports scientist, perhaps would, or someone with a coaching background. So, it, 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 to me, at the time, it actually made some reasonable sense. It, it sort of fitted in with that ten percent rule, which we knew the evidence was not exactly supporting. And on the yeah. surface, this is though looked as though, oh, this, this actually doesn't look too bad. <laughs> yeah, actually, no, you're right because uh, there were some paper published uh, by Tim Abbott. Uh, in which it showed that uh, if you increase uh, the workload uh, more than 10%, you increase the injury risk. Uh, so basically supporting this 10% rule, even if after he published that is a myth. So I, I still don't know if he is convinced or not that this 10% rules uh, can be useful. Basically, the, the, the message may be similar. So the 10% rule, of course, is a rule, uh, is a rule of thumb, which is... Uh, mm. Uh, very generic, uh, but uh, sensitized to the to, to the overload progression and say not to exaggerate in the overload progression. Even if sometimes when you coach someone, you may be forced or you may try something more extreme, and this is sometimes a part of the job. Uh, and you have also to adapt your training load depending on the on the time you have at disposal. For, for preparing someone for the performance. If you have just a few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, you have two big uh, or important events very close. Sometimes <clears throat> you have to force. When I was training, I, I, I also used uh, to induce overreaching, for example, uh, in order to, to, to have a, a, a jump in performance, hoping to have a jump in performance that never happened, actually. Mm-hmm. So, but, <laughs> it's um, yeah, it, it, it's something like the ten percent rule, which is an easy answer to a complex question. And the mm-hmm. acute chronic workload ratio does exactly the same: provide people with uh, an easy answer to a complex question, so you don't have to struggle too much. You have an indicator, 
you use that indicator and it seems the work is done and it seems that the work is done in an evidence-based uh, in an evidence-based uh, manner uh, but as you, as you probably know for me science is is a very serious uh, issue and when we talk about evidence uh, we have to be sure that what we are presenting is an evidence and most of our Uh, work uh, is to show that this evidence is not that strong as people think and sometimes it's very very weak uh, as we have shown in in our recent papers actually just a, a slightly sideways question which we may come back to could it be different depending on the sport like my my background is running you know to work out the 10% rule to work out the acute to chronic workload ratio is really easy you know it's miles per week Could it be different for other sports where it's much more complex to try and work out the loads? I think it's complex for any sport because I also train some marathon runners uh, with uh, two hour and 12. Hmm. So I may say I'm a good coach. The problem is that this guy was uh, was much better before I trained. So <laughs> even if... Sometimes you look a good coach, but just because you have some talent that mm. can compensate the, the mistakes that you, that you make. But um, uh, no, I think uh, the, the, the complexity of understanding what's the right dose for the athletes is, uh, is um, complicated uh, in, in any sport. Uh, the advantage of sports like running is or cycling is that uh, the training that you plan is uh, usually more close to the training that they they really do this uh, doesn't happen sometimes in team sports because they have a lot of spontaneous activities so let's say this more side the games or the competition or the matches uh, that provide the training stimulus uh, there's no way you can predict what they can do you can have an idea but you don't know exactly what they are doing that's why monitoring is important because you need to know what they have really done even if you plan some sort of uh, progression in the training Mm-hmm. Uh, with running or cycling, it's easier because if I tell you to run, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, <clears throat> 10, meet, 10, 10 minutes uh, at that uh, intensity, at that pace, and after you recover for five minutes, uh, it's easier for you to follow my my program. And uh, in team sport, this is much more complicated. So it's not the question of... Uh, of um, it, it's more a, a feasibility problem. The, the, the training program in in sports in team sports uh, is more uh, complex because you cannot predict uh, accurately how much load they will they are going to to do in in the real uh, situation before we go down the much deeper hole of of the acute chronic workload ratio sort of conceptual and, and methodological flaws Could we quickly sidestep into just just a quick definition, um, uh, a quick summary of a definition, and that is the the term overtraining. I know we, we, we always talk about sort of not wanting athletes to become overtrained and these ratios and percentages hopefully help us not overtrain someone. But recently listened to uh, yourself and your colleague from uh, UTS, Aaron Coots, listened to your, your podcast, uh, Vern Gambetta's podcast. Mm-hmm. And you all, a couple of you were in sort of agreement that um, – you'd very rarely ever seen an overtrained athlete. Could you just explain that comment to, to us and, and what overtraining means, if anything? Yeah, that's uh, actually a common experience of most coaches working with, uh, with athletes and high-level athletes. 
um, overtraining. I also, when I speak with coaches, sometimes I use the term overtraining, even if overtraining is a term that should be used very rarely because overtraining, if we use some, uh, let's say, um, established definitions, uh, Uh, means that you have a drop in performance uh, for even if you recover that lasts more than six months. So it's a very severe condition. And what I can say and what we discuss is that in reality, the real overtraining, so someone that has a drop in performance lasting six months, one year, a long time, despite you, you do whatever you can for recovering, is is a very rare uh, situation uh, with more than let's say hundreds of uh, hundreds of uh, cyclists that they have seen just uh, a bunch can be uh, could be considered overtrained and this uh, um, uh, this also because of some situations in which we think uh, that uh, the athletes are overtrained in reality can be justified by Um, other conditions. For example, we found out that most of these uh, athletes had uh, a, a viral infection. Um, so there are sometimes medical conditions that uh, explain why there was this drop in performance. So, so yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt. Where does overuse injury, another commonly used term, where does that fit into this uh, discussion? The idea is that uh, the association is easy, and that's why the overuse injury are associated with, uh, have been associated with uh, um, overtraining, because uh, overtraining um, means that you are training a lot, and if you are training a lot, you are covering a lot of distances, a lot of uh, uh, whatever, and uh, and. So it's easy to associate overtraining to overuse injury. So it's a, also a terminological association. And as a, it makes sense, because if I train a lot, I increase the risk of, of creating problems to my system, uh, muscle skeletal system. So that's why it, it, it was associated. And there was Keebler in the, uh, at the end of the 90s, uh, also developing and proposing a theory uh, uh, linking the overtraining to uh, overuse injuries based on the overload on the tissues. And, and uh, it makes sense, of course. These are just theories because uh, uh, in terms of, of sport, uh, uh, the evidence is not that strong, but there are studies... Um, more control in other fields, more physiological and more biomechanical that have shown that uh, um, if you increase the load on the tissue, you can you create a da damage that can increase the risk of rupture of the structure. So it makes sense from a conceptual point of view, absolutely. And that's why it's associated. And I guess the, the, the point I'm angling towards here is um, one of the first papers of yours I read in the BJSM, which was when you were referring to the, the phrase, the new phrase, training load error, um, this new sort of term of, you know, um, this is a training load error. And you said, and you, I, I believe the title of the paper was training load error is, is no different to, oh, Craig's going to pull it up. Uh, training load error is not a more accurate term than overuse injury. Now, talk us through um, what yours and your, and your, and your co-authors were, were sort of thinking um, when, when you sort of sat down to write this paper. 
Yeah, because the there was a, this uh, this paper was a sort of um, counterpoint to another paper published on the on British Journal of Medicine, uh, suggesting to change uh, uh, the the term uh, overuse injury to training load error, and uh, we just we were just thinking that it was uh, a strange uh, a strange suggestion. It uh, honestly. And this is what we have written. It, it makes not a lot of sense, as in a let's say provocative, provocative way we wrote on the on, on this opinion piece is that if you change, if you want to change in this way the uh, overuse injury, we we may suggest uh, to change also the rain injury as a rehabilitation error injury. So you generate a sort of uh, of. Uh, um, again, simplification of a complex problem, just changing the name, and you, you, you move the attention on one component of uh, the, the web of, uh, of uh, co- potential causes of injuries. Because if you think about uh, that's only a problem with training load error, you don't focus your attention to other aspects of uh, the athlete's life that is important. So in that in that opinion piece, we we try to explain this that it makes no sense to to rename in this way, and is a is a, a bit arbitrary. And and this way to approach the problem of injuries, focusing too much on training load, in my opinion, it doesn't help a lot. Also because we have to think that when we work with athletes, we we, we have to train the athletes. So we cannot say oh let's train a bit less. It depends on the situation if. Uh, when I, I was training my athletes for uh, World Championship or Olympic Games, uh, uh, we, we had to train and to go there, not just to participate, but to win. So uh, what we need to do is to, to have athletes that uh, are strong enough and robust enough to cope and to tolerate the training that we need or we want to, to provide for improving performance. So the the... the Changing the name of overuse injuries, uh, maybe a provoking uh, article or whatever. But to be honest, it's it's really it, it makes not a lot of sense. And we just try to write this. Of course, uh, uh, the I, I don't have anything to uh, because it was proposed by it was proposed by um, uh, Drew that I know is a good guy. So it's, it's not, there's nothing personal. It's just that he proposed this idea and we just uh, explained that we don't agree with these ideas. After that, people can do, of course, whatever they want. Uh, Craig's just pulled up a, a comment here, I guess, from Facebook. Oh, it's gone again, Craig. Um, it's from Derek. Uh, hi, Derek. Didn't realize you were watching. Derek is a, um, a physio who's got a PhD in pain. He's no slouch as a runner either. He's like a 230 marathon guy. Uh, overuse injury, not an accurate, uh, also not an accurate term because for many such injuries, there's no radiological or histological evidence of uh, air quotes injury. Instead, it fits uh, biomechanical reasoning. Um, is, is that kind of what you're saying, Franco, that overuse injury was a was a was not a perfect term to start with, but what we were doing there was we were taking one and we were replacing it with another term, which was no no more or less perfect either. Was that your kind of message yeah yeah i mean uh, of course it depends always on, on the on the meaning we attribute to different terms uh, in the paper we we just presented uh, 
uh, other definitions provided uh, in other contexts uh, for overuse. So, yes, overuse can be a bit misleading, but there are other proposals uh, that uh, suggest how to interpret this term. So, but, but the question was not that we, we had a, a, a better idea. It was that the solution that had been provided was not very helpful. Yeah. So I agree that uh, overuse can be a bit misleading, but that's why we need to clarify what we mean by overuse. So to be honest, I'm not very scared about the terminology uh, uh, unless the terminology is, is uh, loaded with uh, misleading, uh, um, misleading information like uh, training load errors. Uh, so I, I, I agree with, uh, with Eric that yeah. also may be misleading. But it's not, I mean, maybe the, we need the consensus to define better these terms. That's not my job, to be honest. My job is to, uh, since I work in, in sport and on train load, is uh, uh, to avoid that the, the new terms are introduced, moving the attention on uh, not so relevant uh, issues. Yeah. Cool. So let's get to the fun bit then, the, the, the meat of the discussion. And um when it comes to acute chronic workload ratio since 2014, I tried to do a bit of a search earlier today just to see how many papers had been published on it. And to be honest, I, I, it was just almost impossible to do. There were there were hun- potentially hundreds. I, I just didn't know where where the, where the search ended. Um, as such, like any body of literature, you suddenly start meta analyses and, and systematic reviews start popping up. And interestingly, we had two systematic reviews on this. Um, both published this calendar year within a couple of months of each other. Craig, have you got them there to pull up just so we can highlight the work for anyone listening after the fact or listening to the podcast, we will link them in the, in the, in the comments below. Um, this was the first one by which one's this? Is this the, um, I can't see that writing. It's too small. Craig, is this uh Mopin et al? I think it is, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, um, there's a Mopin one. Yep. So this one is the relationship between acute chronic workload ratio and injury risk, a systematic review. And then there was the Andrade uh, et al. one, which was literally about five weeks later. I think Craig's just going to pull that one up now. Um, and that was, uh, I don't have the title in front of me. Craig's going to bail me out here. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, is acute chronic workload ratio associated with risk of time loss? So essentially the same, the same systematic review. We would assume from the same, search and the same body of literature. Now, the interesting thing to me, as, as always with these topics, is when different groups of authors looking at the same number data come up with slightly different interpretations and different conclusions. I guess this is the beauty of, 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 uh, of science and research. And one group of authors here were, were fairly conservative in their comments. I'm just glancing down at my notes here. Acute chronic workload ratio may be related to injury, but it has issues. Um, and I'm guessing that's kind of in keeping... Uh, with with where your head's at the another group the other group said um they were much sort of firmer in their conclusions and sort of stated um that its relationship with injury was 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 a bit was a bit more solid how, what are your thoughts on this and how can two groups of scientists or research sort yeah, of we, conclusions looking at the same data yeah we wrote something in our last paper about these uh radios because we comment on, on a radio of griefing for example the problem is that systematic reviews uh, are quite common now, probably are quite abused. I'm not talking about acute chronic ratio, but overall, 
but to run a proper uh, systematic review is not that easy. I mean, it, it's easy, but you should follow established guidelines, and this is commonly not followed. Uh, regarding the acute chronic ratio, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I try to be polite. There's a bias. <laughs> no, there's absolutely bias. Now, we don't know because uh, initially we wanted to write a letter to the editor, but I'm a bit annoyed of, the, of these uh, things. So I, I'm, I'm going uh, now after the paper we are going to publish. Uh, actually, these reviews uh, are losing strength or whatever the conclusion because uh, if you interpret the associations uh, in a strong way or in a weak way, it doesn't change the fact that these associations are statistical artifacts. So I was thinking based on that, that it's not worth to go on with this, uh, uh, with this uh, discussion anymore. But we see, but I, I can just tell you that that in the last review there is uh, is reported uh, uh, a paper of uh, Delacroix with uh, there are two bars with a significant uh, association uh, and, uh, showing that uh, high acute chronic workload ratio compared to low acute chronic ratio, so below one. Uh, is associated with injuries. What I can tell you is that in that uh, in that two bars, one is for uh, four weeks and the other is for three weeks. If I show you these uh, only these two bars with the red uh, at the end, you may think, "Wow, this paper supports the acute chronic." But if I say that uh, for four weeks and three weeks, there were eleven comparisons for each, so twenty-two comparisons. Uh, so changing uh, the, the reference category, all these kind of things, and only two were significant, uh, that results for sure as a different weight. And, and that's the bias, because if I select the information that I report and then I don't explain how and why I select in this way, I can give you an impression that uh, it's a consistent this this uh, this association, but if I t- just tell you, you know, there is a study showing that two comparison out of twenty two are are significantly associated. Of course, uh, you interpret in a different way. If I avoid to tell you that there were twenty two comparisons, so this uh, this just to explain you that you you can do whatever you want with the number. You can interpret as you like, and you can select what to report. And that's why a systematic review should report everything. And but this is a, also a failure of the review process because the I think uh, it's difficult to have uh, um, to 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 know all the literature because there are so many papers. There are more than one hundred papers, and it's rare to find someone that has read all one hundred papers. And unfortunately, this is something I did. So I know all the papers, uh, all the papers published. So when they when I see <clears throat> an author cited in a review, usually I also remember uh, more or less the results. So I can I can and do the same example with the study of Fanchini that we use uh, for our because we use the same data set for our study. They show they have four uh, um, comparison out of nine, which is less than fifty percent significant. And again, and only the four significant were presented. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason of the bias. Um, 
I, I, I can tell that the the also uh, in our journal because I'm an editor of uh, science and medicine in football and other radio on acute chronic will be published just to show that I'm uh, I'm probably biased but I don't I try not to interfere with my job so even if uh, I wouldn't even uh, 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 send to the reviewers I actually uh sent to the reviewers and uh, is going to be published so you said there there are a lot of rages but others are coming out and uh, i think there are at least two or three that are going to be published uh, soon because i was involved in some ways in the editorial process so yeah that's the reason uh, you can yeah. and uh, interpret the, the interpretation is is a, is a subjective so it can be biased and I think it's this is the this highlights the challenge for coaches or, or clinicians uh, who are trying to be evidence based and they're searching for the literature and whether it be that they only in their search find one of those reviews, just whichever one they happen upon is the the way they will apply to to their practice or perhaps they'll they'll cherry pick to fit their own existing narrative. I think what we essentially have here is two papers with slightly different views and whichever one you pick, whichever side of the fence you sit on here you could claim you're still being evidence-based. And I think that's the kind of interesting position we, we, we find ourselves in. One of the things we wanted to do here was to make sure that if people did find themselves in these positions, we served up as many other papers for them to go away and read, just to make sure they're reading as much as possible. And I want to come on to um, your paper. Um, I guess it's the, the big one, really, that, that talked about the, the conceptual issues you have with acute to chronic. I don't know if you've got it there, Craig. It's the one that was in... Um, uh, International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. Yeah. Uh, what was the title? Yeah. What was the title, Frank? Uh, chronic workload ratio, methodological, and, and beat force, or something like that. So was it the consensus statement one? No, no, no. No, no it, it's um, same journal, I think. Um, we're looking terribly unprofessional and, and unprepared here, and, and, and that's exactly what we are, Frank. So I apologize. Um, no, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, we're searching to to pull that up. Could we just get into the real, the real, the film stuff? If if someone said to you, right, okay, give me the give me the the big three things. What are the biggest reasons that you have a problem conceptually, methodologically, with the acute yeah. What are the hits? Okay, so uh, in that paper, we raise some uh, concern. Uh, first of all, I I would like to be to introduce the where everything started because. Uh, yeah, I haven't got it. I haven't got it handy. Sorry. <laughs> right. It's okay. It was published on the International Journal of Sport Physiology and Performance. I'll link uh, to it. I'll link yeah. it. Um, uh, I, I, I start to raise my concern uh, about two years ago now in Bern uh, during a conference uh, in which uh, Tim Gabbett was present. And there was uh, uh, also um, uh, Karen Camp from the British Journal of Sport Medicine, and there was also uh, Drew. So there, there were people that have uh, proposed this uh, this model and this uh, metric. So uh, while I had some concern even before, I, I waited for uh, that occasion to express my concerns to the proponent of the of the acute chronic in person. I thought it was the uh, uh, the right way to do, having the possibility to be in, in at conference at the same time. 
And uh, so and it was in that occasion that I start to read more, uh, to go more in depth because I was asked to, to, to do a, a talk uh, uh, critically apprising this uh, new metric. Um, after that, uh, I found out that there were uh, reading the literature, there were really serious problems. 